Hello, and welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series. Hi, this is Jerome Davis. I'm the Artistic Director of Burning Coal Theater Company. And I'd like to welcome everyone to Into the Fire, the Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series on all things theatrical. Today, we have a special guest, uh, the director, Neil Keller. Uh, Neil is um, a uh, native Tar Heel. He was born in Durham, uh, North Carolina. He is also a freelance stage director uh, of considerable renown, and he is currently an associate artistic director at the Center Theater in Los Angeles. Neil, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's, we're, we're delighted to have you. The, the reason we've asked Neil to join us today is that Neil was uh, the uh, first director of both uh, of the plays that we're opening this week, the Dale Orlando Smith uh, duo, um, Until the Flood and Forever. Um, Neil, I want to dive into that uh, hot and heavy, but I want to first find out just a little bit about you. So you grew up in uh, Durham, and did you go to school here as well? I did. I, I did. I um, spent all my formative years in Durham. So uh, I grew up uh, in what's called the Trinity Park neighborhood of Durham, uh, sort of in the downtown-ish area. I went to Durham Public Schools, graduated from what was then called Durham High School. I think it is may still be called that, although it's now a magnet for the performing arts. Oh, yes. uh, and then I left uh, to begin my life after high school in Durham. My parents still live there, and I still consider myself, you know, a diehard uh, Tar Heel, though I am a Duke fan, not a UNC Tar Heel. Uh-huh, understood. There is a, a, okay. There's a big difference. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Uh, seven miles, as I understand. Uh, so, um, the, the uh, so college for you was was outside of uh, of North Carolina. Yeah, I graduated from Oberlin College in Ohio, and then through a very fortuitous uh, series of lucky breaks and events, I made my way in the theater. Uh, some of that interestingly uh, began because there were some people in Durham who I knew had grown up around who knew people who worked in the theater in New York who introduced me to some people in New York and I moved uh, to DC in New York to work through those connections and got my first jobs in the theater and began directing at small little theaters and then slowly you know a career by luck and good fortune steamrolled and through no plan of my own I slowly moved west, farther and farther from North Carolina, and now am, you know, on the other coast in Los Angeles, which is a very strange place to be making theater because most people think of LA as a film town, obviously. Well, uh, there's a there's a fairly active uh, 99 seat uh, theater uh, community there, or there was for a while. I understood, Stan, that there were some issues with actors equity uh, i don't know if you followed that story or not but uh... yeah it's a very important story to everybody in la so so and, and it's still a little bit undetermined exactly how it will work out you know there was many many years ago before my arrival in la an agreement worked out between actors equity and 99 seat theaters here in la there was a special contract and it basically allowed theaters to be in existence particularly company theaters ensemble theaters um and not 
necessarily have the pay scales of other equity theaters because a lot of actors here were working in film and television. It's a unique environment in that way and making money that way, but they wanted to be able to do plays, a lot of them to do classic plays or to do plays that spoke to them personally. And they weren't as concerned necessarily about the pay. So equity made a deal, which allowed not only a lower pay scale, but it also allowed the double casting of plays so mm. that actors could be in a play, but then if they got an episode of a TV show, they could leave and not leave the production in the lurch. And that also was a reason for sort of the lower pay scales because you basically had twice the cast for sure. all shows. Sure. So, and there were other provisions. A few years ago, Equity decided to sort of revisit and cancel that um, contract because many actors had started to say they wanted to get a higher pay, a higher rate of pay, at least as much as minimum wage. And so it, it began and continues to be a conversation, I think, about mm. amongst the actors here in LA about how they want to work and how they should be compensated. And it's not been resolved yet. There's sort of a, a middle ground contract that's been negotiated that's allowed some of those theaters to stay open and required other theaters to pay more. And I think we'll continue to see once this pandemic's over and we get back to producing live theater, It'll take a few years, I think, for all that to settle out. But there is a very, people are often fond of saying that there's more theater companies in Los Angeles than any other city in America. Yeah. They just tend to be, there's a huge range from the very, very small to the very large. The Mark Typer Forum, for instance. Um, yes, right. And those are the theaters I work at. I, my company has three theaters. We have the Mark Taper Forum, the Kirk Douglas Theater, which is over in Culver City. Mm-hmm. And we run the Amundsen Theater, which is really a large Broadway touring house. So we have sort of three of the large theaters. Do you ever work at the Geffen Playhouse? I have worked off and on at the Geffen, uh, particularly in their new play uh, workshop world. I tend to work a lot with playwrights and, and new plays and developing new plays. And so I work with most of the theaters in this area, South Coast Rep. I have a long history at La Jolla Playhouse as well, working on new plays. Did you know Rick Lombardo by chance? Uh, I know, I don't know Rick, but I certainly know who Rick is and we've met at events, but we've never sort of actually worked together. A friend of mine and I, when we were living in New York, hired Rick to direct us in a play. He was just sort of starting out at the time and and uh, and he kicked, kicked butt with that thing. Man, he was really good. And, I, and then he went off to run a community theater in Ohio. And I thought, well, that's the last I'll ever see of... Uh, Rick, and then the next thing I know, he's out there on the West Coast running a like a five million dollar company. Although yep, I guess they've quite well. Yeah, he has. He really has. Uh, well, um, so um, so directing uh, Neil for you was um, was the primary objective from an early age, uh, or or did you fall into it like some some actors tend to do? You know, I there wasn't really an opportunity to direct through high school. So I did a lot of acting. I, I was a very bad, I'd like to say very cheap actor. Um, I, and so I acted in lots of, of productions at Durham High School. Uh, and then they were all directed by an English teacher. There was no opportunity you know, to direct. I didn't really even know that sort of existed. Um, and then in college, I continued to act in productions. There began to be some directing classes and some opportunity to direct. Mm-hmm. And what happened to me is in college, I also took some design classes with set and costume designers. Sure. And it was really in those conversations about learning about the design process, all of which happens, you know, months before rehearsal starts. And you talk about sort of the macro issues about like, what story are we really trying to tell? 
if that's the story we're trying to tell, how should we cast the show? How should we costume the show? And I became fascinated in those sort of larger questions about the play as opposed to these specific character questions that an actor is concerned with. And so I sort of fell into that and in love with that. But the truth of the matter is the reason I fell into loving that, I now know as a wizened old senior citizen, mm -hmm. was going back to the South, going back to North Carolina and my grandmothers who both lived in South Carolina and were great storytellers. Sure. What I hadn't realized until that moment is what I loved was the sweep of telling the story, you know, and, and imagining, okay, someone buys a ticket at the box office. They, from the moment they walk into the theater, what is the story I'm immersing them in? What music am I playing pre-show? What do the lights look like? How does the first actor walk on stage? What is the story? So at the end of the night, they feel like, you know, they've been told a tale. And, right. uh, and that really goes back, I think, to a part of my Southern heritage. Yeah. It's so, so little uh, understood by people outside of our industry, how, how critical the design elements are to the storytelling. Process. I was on a Zoom call today talking about, among other things, the shuttered venues grant that the federal yes. government's about to roll out. Yeah. And they have a disclaimer in it that you can't apply unless you pay your performers. And uh, I thought, well, you know, that uh, theater isn't just people walking out on stage and starting to talk. You know, there's other people involved in that, and they don't seem to know that. You know, these people at the very highest levels of government are making these decisions that will affect the lives of our industry, and they don't seem to know that there's such a thing as a set designer. Or you know, <laughs> I, I think it's so true. I think so much about how you actually make shows, like what our industry is, are, are secret. And that may be in part to maintain a certain mystery and excitement about going. But, yeah. you know, my parents have now been coming to see shows I've directed for 40 years. And they still, and we've had many, many conversations about <laughs> the specific shows, and they'll still see a show and afterwards they'll be like, now, what did you do exactly? And did you, <laughs> did you choose the color of that dress? Did you, you know, like the whole sort of collaborative process and yeah. Because it's also, I think we conspire to make it seem like it's happening only in that moment they're watching, you know, that we try and sort of scrub off our tracks of the six months of trying to determine what that dress would look yeah. like and what the set would be, you know. And um, and what, one of the things that's, that's, you know, not necessarily to segue to Dale, but one of the things that has, I have loved about working over the years with Dale, and we've worked together now off and on for decades, is, and with this would be true, I suppose, of working with any solo writer performer, uh, is that that process of the acting, the writing of the play, which is the most lengthy of the process, the sure. design, which comes in somewhere between the beginning of the writing and the performance, all of that, when you work with a writer performer, becomes melded into one. Because we're, as Deal writes the play, the world of the play is becoming clear, and the designers start tinkering with things. And sometimes the set evolves out of things that Dale in that hybrid as the writer performer starts physically needing or having around her as she writes the play. So rather than those all being sort of separate camps of people who arrive at different periods in the collaborative process, right. there is a, there is a, a unity of the, or, or a mess or whatever you want to call it of mm -hmm. that process, which sure. I really enjoy.
Yeah, it's uh, it's true that uh, for any um, for any director working with a living playwright is much different, I think, than working with a, a deceased playwright. But you've got the additional um, complication, I guess, of of working with a living playwright who is also performing the play. Uh, it, how is that different for you? Is it uh, is it simply a matter of um, needing less input from other voices, or or how does how does that affect your work as a director? With Dale particularly, because we've known each other so long, there is a depth of friendship. You know, Dale is part of my family. She's helped raise my children. She, she is a, so working with her in a way is more intimate uh, than perhaps I'm working, if I started now working with a different writer to performer, but certainly the process of working with a writer performer is more intimate, is more direct. As we write the play and talk about why this character should follow that character or this scene should be here or that should happen there or what kind of scene are we missing, you're also, without even knowing it, developing the performance. You're developing the character. You're making certain decisions that will affect. So there's a seamlessness to that process that when we eventually arrive then at a theater and we're gonna have an audience, you. you you don't have like a hard first day of rehearsal start where it's brand new to the actor and you have to remember, oh, I have to sort of go back and let the actor know all of the decisions and all of the creativity that has led to this moment. Because Theo carries all that in her experience of doing it with us, right? And so, and then interestingly, uh, with the writer performer, which doesn't happen with an actor who's not the writer, there comes a point as we get close to previews where Dale has to say to us, at certain moments of the day, okay, I am now gonna be wearing exclusively my actor hat. Or, okay, now we've finished rehearsal, we're talking about the play, I am now wearing exclusively my writer hat. Because there does for her come a time where she has to separate those things and she begins to have certain internal conversations with herself and decisions that are based on the performance and, and other ones that are based on the writing. And there does come a time where you have to segregate those things or it becomes sort of overwhelming for her. And she must, uh, that must involve a great degree of trust on, on her part, because part of what you're saying is that she she tells you that she's going to let you make the, the editorial choices at that point. Uh, yeah, I think, and she always knows that any decision I make is completely revisitable. You know, if we decide to do something, we have a preview that night and Dale's like, that didn't work. I'm yeah. not going to say okay, I know better than you, you were up there, you know, you know, so I do think there is that kind of trust. And I think with all writers, you know, I think the reason I've been drawn to working so much with new writers and developing plays is because I feel my primary obligation is to find the way to most effectively and entertainingly tell the story they're trying to tell to an audience, whether they're performing it or other actors are going to perform it. And that has to do with helping them really figure out what the central thread of that story is and then how best theatrically to achieve it. And so I think I would hope that writers I work with always feel that that's my primary goal. It is not to, to do something flashy that's going to, you know, make some sort of stamp for me or to, but it's always to sort of investigate what, again, to going back to that Southern thing, like what's the root of that story? You know, what are you following and what's, what's compelling people to follow those characters? So I think trust is built. I think that you love the words, you know, and that any, at this point, any suggestion I make to Dale about editing or about the use of language 
or anything comes primarily from years and years of being around her and being around her work. So it's not coming from, you know, some theory of, oh, it's always best if the second scene is loud, you know, or whatever. It's coming from some understanding of her rhythms, her worldview, the way she sees things, the way she understands things, what she might be trying to communicate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but that's just, yeah, comes over time. That, uh, that's, that idea of, um, of following the, inter I guess you could say the internal consistency of a play um, is, is a, I, I agree with you completely that that's the, the primary objective of a director. And I wonder, uh, Neil, is, is that something that can be taught to a director? You, you know, I, I don't know, and I don't know that I'm the right person to ask because I don't believe that I ever had in school effective teachers in directing which may be that I just didn't have them, or it may be that it can't be taught in that way. That I also feel that there are certain people who are actors who can through training and repetition and class, classes get better, they can hone the craft. But I do believe there's something, there's a spark that wonderful actors have. I don't have it and, and that cannot be trained. And, but I will say that I never went to a high profile drama school that has really wonderful teachers. Right. And, but what I did have was when I went to New York, I had an, a remarkable series of mentors, professional mentors who were not teaching me in classrooms, but whom I worked on productions with uh, theater productions, ballets, all kinds of things. And yes, those, some of those directors, just by watching them and in conversation with them in the rehearsal room and after rehearsals, I was able to understand how as different as they were, and some of them were, you would never put in the same list ever, but they, the ones I was drawn to, I started to realize had this in common, which is that they were after that story. They would dig underneath the script to find the story that carried the piece throughout mm -hmm. the evening. And anything that didn't fit that got jettisoned. Anything that could be enhanced toward that did. And the other thing they followed, all of these directors, I'm thinking of two particularly, was an ability to experience the plays, the productions with audiences live in the room during previews. So they were able to be flexible and to realize that's not, People are not interested in that, which I thought was very interesting. That idea I thought was so beautiful, people couldn't care less. It's getting in the way of the story. They would be able to both watch the actors and participate in the audience in terms of where is the energy? Are people with it? Are they leaning forward? Are mm -hmm. they looking at their watches? And they would adjust. And so mm -hmm. I think those things can be sort of taught by example, but I think by living them. Yeah. I certainly found all of my education, my really valuable education happened actually in theaters and rehearsal rooms and not in classrooms. I always tell, uh, tell young people when they ask me what to do, I say, find somebody who's smarter than you and, and get in a room with them for a while, you know? Uh, Absolutely. So, so we're going wildly out of chronological order, but uh, how did you meet uh, Dale Orlander Smith originally? How did that well, first meet? That's, it's not that out of chronological order because it goes back almost to getting out of high school. Hmm. All right. So uh, when, after I moved to New York, uh, I had been there for a few years and through again, as happens, as I tell people always like keep working 
keep meeting people, keep doing things because you don't know when that door is going to open. And, and no. it usually opens, I think, when there's either, you know, a thing like a graduate school admission or some sort of fellowship you can apply for, or it opens because someone just dropped out and they suddenly need somebody and your name happens to be on their desk and they're willing to give you a break. And that happened with me at a theater called the Williamstown Theater Company. And sure. I got invited up to the Williamstown Theater Company one summer, which is fantastic to leave hot, smelly New York in the summer and go up to the cool mountains of Massachusetts. Anyway, it's a wonderful place. And I went there for a summer and, and as part of a fellowship and I got to direct a show and it went well. And so they invited me back the next summer and I was going to do, or maybe it was, I guess it, this with Dale was two summers later, but I went for about five summers in a row. And the summer that I eventually met Dale, I was doing Romeo and Juliet. The previous summer I had done A Midsummer Night's Dream and it was very important to me. It's interesting when I think back to that time now, but it was very important to me that the cast of those shows be very diverse. And, and uh, when it came to Romeo and Juliet, it just so happened that in the lead up to that summer, I was living in New York, you know, and as a wonderful tough place to be as a young person, I was constantly going out and doing things. And one of the things that someone had taken me to was something called the New Yorican Poets Cafe, which sure. still exists on the Lower East on Side. Fourth. It's a slightly different location. It used but to a very, be 42nd, I think. Mm -hmm. It's now down like on 3rd Street, East 3rd Street, but mm -hmm. the New Yorican Poets Cafe. And I went one night and one of the performers, one of the poets who was speaking their own words was Dale Orlando Smith. Mm. At that point, she was just beginning to write and perform in, in theater pieces, but that night she was performing some poetry. She's really a poet at heart. And I, I fell in love with her poetry style and her presence on stage, which is Dale's presence is remarkable. And one thing I love about working with her still to this day is we go to a lot of theaters that we've been to before because people will have Dale back every three or four years to do a different play, but we still go to places that have never had Dale. And to watch audiences experience Dale in a theater for the first time mm -hmm. is always joyful. She, her presence is really galvanizing and amazing. So anyway, I became quite taken with her. And when I was doing Romeo and Juliet some months later, I asked if she would come up and play the maid, which she did. So this goes back just about 35 years ago or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and she did. And, and we had a, a, a very good time, but complicated time. It was a comp Williamstown, Massachusetts was a complicated place for a very large, powerful African-American woman to be for five weeks. Yeah. Uh, and so we sort of bonded over all parts of that experience, the social and the theatrical. Dale's family is from South Carolina. We share a lot of the world, different parts of the world, but the same world, if you will. Um, and so we were drawn to each other and we remained friends. And off and on over the, the next decades, we would see each other, we would work together again, we would talk about working together again. Then at one point when I was in LA, so this goes back 10 or 12 years, mm -hmm. we were gonna present a play of Dale's, uh, a commission that she had written for us. I was not directing it, another director was directing it. But we decided as part of that, event when Dale, it was a play that Dale was not in. It was a play she had written for other actors to do. She was not going to be in it, but she'd be here for rehearsal. We decided that we would do one of her one person shows called Stoop Stories uh, while she was in rehearsal uh, and that our audiences would get to see Dale perform in Stoop Stories and then they would see this play that she had done. So we, she and I just sort of knocked up a production of Stoop Stories. It had been done many, many times. Other directors had directed it. I'd never directed it, but we sort of found each other again in that process and enjoyed working together. Center Theater Group subsequently commissioned Dale to quote, write another play. There was no uh, 
decision what the play would be, but to write another play. And that play became forever. Okay, and when we commissioned her again, I think the, under, the thought was that we might work together. It wasn't a done deal, but that we might work together on the play. I went up to see Dale do yet another play. She's very prolific. Another play of hers at Berkeley Rep, which must have been in like the spring of 2012, I think. I'm remembering this right. And I was going to come see the play, and then we were going to have a drink afterwards and talk about the commission and what the commission might be. Dale had sent us several ideas, uh, and I was coming with some ideas of my own to talk about what might be possible. One of the ideas Dale had sent us was that there's a movie, you can rent it, it's a, it's a, a movie which is also called Forever. Mm. It's a documentary of someone who went to Père Lachaise Cemetery um, mm. and just interviewed people who were coming there, people who were coming there to see the graves of famous people, some of whom Dale mentions in her play, um, and also people who were coming because they had family members and loved ones, unknown people who were buried there. And it's a meditative piece with people talking about basically communing with the dead at this famous, beautiful cemetery. Yeah. And Dale talked about, there was one character in particular in the movie uh, that Dale was interested in maybe dramatizing and writing a play about that person. Okay, so that was one of Dale's ideas when I arrived that night. I don't even remember my other ideas because what happened is I saw the show at Berkeley which was a show sort of like until the flood, uh, an evening of characters who are not Dale. Right. And it was very difficult material. It, that particular play was about men who have been sexually and physically abused. Black um, and blue. Uh, black and blue black boys, and broken blue. men. Right. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> sitting in the theater, here you go back to that thing about learning directing, sitting in the theater, I felt rightly or wrongly that the audience at the end of the day was more interested in who is Dale, that incredible person and persona I'm watching than the individual characters. There was something, at least for me in that night, where that was the feeling. And so I went, when we met after the show, I said to Dale, Dale, I think for this commission, you should write something that answers that question that the audience is very interested in. Who are you? How did you get to this stage tonight? How did you become the person that I'm seeing? Yeah. Um, and so she, I remember her immediate reaction. She said, oh, no, not the dreaded first person. Dale doesn't, <laughs> didn't want to write sort of in the first person. And I said, yeah, I think that's really important. So that sort of, for the moment, for that night, got rid of all the conversation about ideas she'd proposed about writing other characters, yeah. even if they were based on true people and whatever ideas I had come with. And we just left it at that. The only thing we did talk about is I said to Dale, you know that idea you have about that movie forever? What I'm interested in is a story you told me about you going to Paris once, not these characters in this movie who are not related to you. I understand why you like this movie. That cemetery is very important to Dale and cemeteries in general are very important to Dale. But she had told me a story about dancing at Jim Morrison's grave, uh, uh, sort of with someone she never spoke to who was wearing headsets and listening to his own music. Okay, mm -hmm. and, and something about that trip and the importance to Dale about the family of artists in that cemetery. So, and we left it at that. We then, uh, I don't know, a few weeks passed, and Dale sent me a, 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 a memoir. And by that, I don't mean it was a, a written as a memoir meant to be published, but a lot of pages about certain stories of her mother and hers life and relationship. Yeah. And, and 
it was not written as a play. It was just, it was just pages, wonderful stories and anecdotes and things about her and her mm. mom. It had nothing to do with Paris. And, and somehow then we talked about it and we talked about what, what from that, this large amount of writing might become a play. And somehow the spine of it became, what if we combine that idea of how you had this life with your mom and then much years later, you had this trip to Paris, which in essence was to, to celebrate the official uh, beginning of your life with, with your family being these artists. Your, in other words, your rejection yeah. of your mother. Yeah. Right? And is there a way to combine those stories about family, about, as Dale says, a DNA family, the family you're born with, not the family you chose, right. and then the family that you, we all choose. Um, and so then began a very happy and long three or four years of sort of whittling and editing and trying to find a way for those stories to coexist. Some of which was, was things that had actually happened. And this is what becomes interesting about working directly with the writers. So some of it was directly what had happened in the past, both this trip to Paris, which actually happened and these events with her mother as a child, which actually happened. But also we began mm -hmm. to be informed by the things that were happening as Dale dug into her memories and her past mm -hmm. and including um, trips to a storage room that had items that she had put in storage not long after her mother died when the house they grew up in was bought by the city for eminent domain and torn down. Yeah. She had put and locked in the storage closet and not been back to that storage closet in whatever it had been at that point, 15 or 20 years. And she had to go back to that storage closet mm -hmm. to get some material. Because when we would ask questions about how did this happen and do you have a photo of that person, yeah. what, she would go. So literally, not just metaphorically, she had to unlock, you know, memories, painful memories. And, to, and so those actual trips became part of the piece. So we had sort of her history as an adult in Paris, her history as a child with her mother, and then suddenly the history of revisiting all of this stuff in the moment, the actual living history that began to combine into this piece. And the, the play is uh, strung together with that idea of, of burial and, and to what extent one can bury um, the yeah. DNA family, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, the piece... Yeah. And I think, it, again, it, ultimately, it was not only because this is what happened to Dale prior to the piece. It was somehow in the years of writing the piece, this idea of Dale having to find a way to meld those two families. Yeah. She had to find a way, if not to forgive her mother, to come to more understanding. And she had to understand that she was part of her mother and would carry her mother forever. She could not totally forces. So I feel like the, that's the play. The, the story of that play, I think, has become, you know, this action by a person, in essence, to reject their family, to move on, to christen this new family, and to discover in the process of that, that that old family keeps showing up and dragging her back, literally. And until she's able to sort of invite part of that old family, a part she can understand, a part she can appreciate, yeah. not the part that she hates, into her continuing life, she's not going to be able to go on. And so that becomes the story, you know, and, and, and graveyards, we didn't start that way, you know, but the play, there's always this question about where this play takes place, you know, and, 
with most of Dale's plays, I say where the play takes place is in the theater on the night that you're watching it. That's where the play takes place. It yeah. doesn't take place in Paris. It doesn't take place in the apartment in New York City. It doesn't take place in South Carolina. It takes place in this theater you're doing now. And what Dale is doing is some version of seance, some version of something. And the reason I feel the play works in the theater and is powerful is because Dale understands that whether it is true or not, we as humans believe that graveyards and theaters are places of communion. They are places, not just of communion with the living people, you know, but they are places where you can touch spirits that have been there before you and be touched by them. You yeah. know, we often talk in the theater about the other actors who've been on stage, the other words that have been said in this space, how they, how we can feel them and touch them. And, and I believe Dale feels that. And so as the play progressed, the setting became less and less realistic, less and yeah. less representational of sort of a cemetery in Paris, in a sense, in our minds. And as we moved the production around the country and eventually to Europe, the it was always like an installation in the space. It became, which also then influenced our work on Until the Flood, it became, how do we install in this space? How do we make it feel like a place of communion? And, you know, sometimes these things happen accidentally, which is one of the things my mentors taught me a long time ago. Always be open to the accidental, sure. to the person who opens the rehearsal room door at a moment that drives you crazy. But then you realize, oh, when we do this on the set, someone needs to open the door at that moment to interrupt the session or that music, which I heard on the street today, needs to be in the play. So mm -hmm. when we did the play in uh, forever, the first time in Los Angeles, which was the original production. It just happened to be clo getting close to the Day of the Dead on the calendar. Yeah. And the theater, as part of sort of a citywide initiative, was going to install some sort of altar in the theater, that uh, ofrenda, that people could leave items on. And then come the Day of the Dead or a few days before that, all of these ofrendas from cultural institutions all over the city were going to be transported to this huge altar downtown by City Hall. Okay. And that was sort of separate from the play. But the minute they told Dale and I about this, the people who work in the front of house, the ushers and whatnot, we sort of thought, oh no, those altars should not be separate. They should be about this play. In the play, Dale obviously talks about ancestors, you know, and and uh, yeah. so we thought these altars, which are gonna be about ancestors, that's what a friend is often about, people or things that have been important to you, to who you've become, sure. and you wanna leave something, that people should be encouraged to leave notes, to leave photographs, to leave things here. And we did that. And over the course of the run, these altars, these tables filled up with things. And then, so then every, that became a very important part of the production, our production. Mm -hmm. So then every theater we went to, we found some way that people would leave notes to celebrate and honor either their DNA family or the people they had chosen to be family members, you know? And at New York Theater Workshop, we extended sort of parts of the set, these wooden panels into the audience and had thousands of pieces of paper and pens everywhere. And every night people would leave notes and tape them up on these pieces, these panels. And the panels continued on stage and had photos of Dale's uh, relatives. But, and by the, you know, it started at the first preview with two or three, pieces of paper taped up there. And by the end of the month, there were thousands deep stacked pieces of paper that people left. And when we were in Ireland at the Abbey Theater, they didn't have a way to do that. So we painted the sides of the theater uh, with black ch uh, chalkboard paint yeah, yeah. and people just wrote and drew with chalk all over. And it became, 
particularly there in Ireland, it started to look like Jim Morrison's grave, which has a lot of graffiti on it and notes. And they were beautiful notes to people. And that, again, sense of trying to make the theater a place of seance and communion, I think grew, again, just out of the organic process right. of, of the piece. Here at our little theater, we have a um, cemetery about 10 blocks from here that dates back to the 1700s. And um, we do a, a play out there every year. We hire local playwrights to write uh, short vignettes about people who've died. And there's some pretty extraordinary people here. Um, um, Margaret Mitchell's first husband is buried here, the man who was the model for Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind, for instance. Don't know why he's here, but he, he is. Uh, well, I do know why. But uh, but uh, one one after one performance, a woman came up to me in tears, and she was new to the community, you know. And and I I said, um, uh, this really got you, hon. And she said, yeah. And I said, I I knew that it would be meaningful to the old old money, you know, the inside, the, what we call inside the belt line, you know, yep. Raleigh crowd. But uh, but I didn't know that uh, people who were new to the community would find it that meaningful. And she said, it reminded me that everyone was new uh, to the community at one point in their lives, you know. Yeah. Um, and so so it had a real strong impact. And what I wonder about uh, about forever specifically, but I, I, I also think it's, it's true of until the flood is that there is a... Um, a component of the life that is lived um, uh, by the characters in, in these stories, um, even the racist cop, for instance, but, uh, uh, but certainly the, uh, most of the other characters in that play and the characters in Forever, and that component is uh, the stress of uh, poverty, uh, the stress of insecurity, uh, financial insecurity, and that is not a um, character, if you will, that most people who attend theater in this country, um, I think, understand fully or have experienced fully. And so I guess my question is, can plays like this and writers like Dale, can they bridge that gap between those two communities uh, in some way and perhaps socially, uh, you know, help to remedy that situation you know i don't you never know whether you can remedy it i think if you're in the theater you believe and i think dale believes deeply that you know again communion communication sharing can make a difference you know and that hearing other people's stories can make a difference and as a writer performer for dale physically sort of standing in someone else's shoes mm -hmm. on stage that racist cop you know, i mean you know that racist guy for doug ray for for instance and mm -hmm. and and, you know, this gets back to the interesting thing about writer performers, because one thing Dale talks about is that she has to love every character, something about every character in order to play it eight times a week. It's exhausting to do these performances. Sure, sure. And so she has to find a way, a part of that character, which is part of forever, was sort of finding in her mother, rediscovering the parts of her mother and trying to come to some understanding and compassion. Dale is a very cold realist but she also is full of compassion. And I think, you know, it's interesting, in addition to sort of financial challenges, I, I think all of Dale's plays share a certain worldview, as is true of any writer. And one of the things that Dale believes deeply is in the sins of the parents passing on to children. Mm -hmm. And the, 
and understanding those sins of the parents, whether they be abusive parents or alcoholic parents or poverty-stricken parents, whatever they are, that, that those sins are because of situations that confronted them and confronted their parents. You know, th these are situational, economic, social things. You know, um, uh, Louisa, until the flood, uses the word legacy. You know, and I think Dale is deeply understands that human individuals, all of us, are weak. We are vulnerable. We have we are fragile in certain ways, and the pressures of society, as get passed on from our parents to us, you know, can shape us and can shape us in horrible ways, ways that we would not have been shaped. One of the characters on Until the Flood, who's a minister, talks to two policemen, a National Guardsman and a policeman in St. Louis, and talks about you were both born gentle. I call you gentlemen because you were both born gentle. And I believe Dale believes that. She believes we're brought into the world without these scars and traits and marks. But we're we need nurturing, you know, and we're fragile. And we all get nurturing to a certain degree and with a certain slant and a certain taint based on what the world has made our parents believe and what the world made their parents believe and how that gets passed down. Mm -hmm. And so certainly financial is about that. Uh, your racial feelings are about that. Your, your, your sort of class or societal feelings are about that, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that Dale, I'm working on another play with Dale now in which it's interesting how each play I work on with Dale sort of helps me understand the previous plays better. You know, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a nonstop process. And, and that play, I think at its heart is is trying to grapple with this notion of, is it helping anybody to write these things and to perform these things? Is the act of creating, sharing, bringing characters to life, writing words to people and sending them out into space when she says them out loud, is that helpful? Does that communication change the trajectory of people's lives? You right. know, because that history legacy is based on all of our individual lives and what we pass on. And I think at some level, Dale is a believer. She can't, she's an optimist and she can't help but believe that the sharing of these things, the inviting people in to experience different things, and until the flood, the wide variety of sort of opinions and effects about legacy and how that those filters make those people feel very differently about the events surrounding Michael Brown shooting, how those events may be able to be altered one person at a time. We are all, I think, sort of small and insignificant under the forces of this, of society, yeah. you know, yeah. but if you can change a few of us and enough of us, the legacy that gets passed on will be different. And I think that is, you know, that's where Dale's plays live. Here we are gathered around a light in a dark room, a few of us, no matter how big the theater, it's a few people. The most is a thousand people, right? The smallest, yeah. it's 20. Can we in these little groups, you know, make ourselves a little more understanding and compassionate and can that then be passed on and begin to grow? I think that's, that's the question. And I feel like Dale and I are in that when we do her work. I, I don't have the answer, but we keep doing it. So I think at some level we remain optimistic that it is better than the alternative. And so we have been doing it for thousands, 3,000 years. So, yeah. So there's something about us that knows, you know, there's something deeply about us that knows. And what really worries me, I, sh I should say, and I certainly thought about it a lot during this election season, until the flood is interesting because it really came to be in the last election cycle, mm -hmm. which added a very tense and interesting thing to that play in those characters. But yeah. in this election cycle, I thought about that and I thought about 
what is potentially lost in the sweep of human civilization when technology begins to allow those gatherings not to be in person, not to be with neighbors and people you live with, but with like-minded people from wherever who gather virtually, who don't actually have to confront, discuss, comfort each other in difficult times, can just sort of rail with each other about things that disturb them and talk about the other, not being there. Because I think we still have that human need to gather and discuss things and tell stories and learn about the world, make sense of the world by telling stories, right? What is QAnon or any of those things other than a story Storytelling that explains the world, right? Yeah. I can tell you a story that has no basis in fact, but it explains about the world the same way the Greek myths did, right? It seems <laughs> to explain the world and we need that. But, yeah. but there was a time where gathering around a campfire, a fire, you know, yeah. was the way humans did it. And now we do it much more virtually. Look at us today. And, and what is lost when we take the physical human contact out of that? And when, if I'm going to call you a name or I'm going to tell a story that devalues you, I'm doing it with you in the room, right? I'm a hell of a lot less likely to do that when it's a human being I have some compassion for in the room yeah. versus if I'm saying it to a cold TV screen and I'm not actually saying that to someone who can say, that's not my story. That's not like how I a, got where I am. That's not what name. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And so I worry that, that our storytelling, our fundamental storytelling need is moving into a world where we're losing the human contact as part of that component. My friend, uh, David Edgar, the playwright, uh, was asked uh, when uh, Nicholas Nickleby was filmed for, for PBS, he was asked if that wasn't, by, by a journalist, if that wasn't the most exciting moment in his life. And he said, no, I much prefer when I see my plays done live. And the guy said, but there are many, many, many more people watching on television. And he said, yes, but that's when you're alone by yourself at your most reactionary um, and that's I thought exactly it was right. an extraordinary way of, res of that, responding to that. That's, that's prophetic. Yeah. I mean, it's prophetic. I have, I'm working on a show now by another play, right? A, a, a play that has now been postponed three times. It was supposed to happen last June. We oh. hope it'll happen this September. But mm. we've now reconceived the whole design for that show because, it, it, of course, it's going to be live, which we love. But it will now be the first moment of people coming back into a room, yeah. a theater, after a year and a half of not being in rooms, of being scared and feeling rooms were dangerous, I'm like, we can't just start the play like it's some play. We have to, the play now has to acknowledge we're all gathering. And that's an exciting, scary, wonderful, celebratory thing. And so the piece, even with us doing nothing, is going to be that way. And I think we have to admit in the production that that's now part of the thing, is that the, it's not just going to see a play, it's returning to a way of communicating and being with people yeah. that we're now not used to. And so how do we work that into the experience of the play? It, it will be an interesting few months uh, coming up. Uh, yeah. hope, knock on wood, that it is only a few months. Um, Neil, this has been great. We've got, gone a little over our normal time, and I appreciate it uh, very much. Uh, we barely began to scratch the surface of Until the Flood, but uh, but they're both uh, extraordinary works um, by what is clearly an extraordinary uh, talent and an extraordinary mind. And and uh, the fact that you have helped to shepherd those two uh, things into life uh, is, um, is 
a fabulous uh, legacy um, for you. So we appreciate you giving us some time to talk with, with us about it. I'm always happy to talk about these two plays. I, I feel blessed to have worked with Dale on them. Sure. You know, I really do need to put them together. And it's long been a dream of Dale's and mine that these two plays particularly be done in rep. And I don't think anyone has ever oh, done it nice. um, to this point until a burning coal. So, so uh, we're both thrilled that you're doing it. And, and I'll be very curious about, you know, audiences reactions back and forth. I think the, yeah. the one, they seem so different because one seems so individual and personal as yeah. a story. Yeah. And one seems so much larger of a canvas and sort of a societal montage. That's not yeah. as deep into an individual, but, but I do think at the end of the day, there are these similarities of worldview and this, and this belief in, in the power of storytelling that I think does unite them thematically and sort of emotionally. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Neil uh, Keller, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and we look forward to maybe bumping into you down the road if you come back to Carolina, check in and say hello. As soon as the pandemic, I'll be back as soon as the pandemic is over. Thank you very, very much. Very good. Take care. Thank you. Bye.